Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Karen Weaver. If you had a tangential awareness of the fact that the NCAA was in the Supreme Court at the end of March talking about its amateurism and antitrust issues, good for you because you're ahead of most people. But like most people, you probably don't really understand the issues as to why the Supreme Court cares about the NCAA or what some of the issues are with its rules with regards to athlete wellness, fairness, and also antitrust. So today I brought in somebody who could give us a very succinct, very clear understanding of what is going on in the NCAA v. Alston case. My guest is Gabe Feldman. He is one of the leading voices in sports law in the United States. He has extensive experience, including representing a variety of sports entities while in private practice, and he's currently the um, chair of the Tulane Sports Law Program in 2019. Feldman was awarded the Schur Gamer Professorship in Sports Law, the nation's very first fully endowed professorship dedicated to sports law at Tulane University. So Gabe, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me on. So you and I were talking just before we got started about who the, who the consumer is in this model of, of college athletics as the courts have decided it. Tell me what, who the consumer is. Yeah, it depends on the restraint we're looking at. So this case has to do with restrictions on athlete compensation. So we're looking at this as the school and the athlete. And the school is either selling education to the athletes who are buying it, or the athletes are selling their athletic services to the schools who are buying it. In the traditional antitrust case, the buyer and seller would be the manu- the, the seller would be the manufacturer and the buyer would be the consumer would be us and we'd be worried about all these manufacturers getting together to harm consumers. It's different here. The harm we're worried about is the harm to college athletes. The restriction on the money they can get, the restriction on their mobility when it comes to transfer rules. Uh, But the courts are still taking into effect us, the end consumer, because they're saying to offset the harm to the athletes, we look at the benefits that we get in the product market. And the product is the creation of college sports. And the Austin case in particular, college football and men's and women's college basketball. And that that product is more attractive to consumers because it is college sports as defined by the amateur rules. And without amateurism, you don't have a distinction between college and pro. So the NCAA says, we know that there is some harm to the athletes, but there's this massive benefit in creating this unique and popular product of college sports. And without these restrictions, there would be no college sports. Without college sports, there'd be no opportunities for athletes and there'd be no opportunities for fans to watch college sports. Okay. So I think it's really important for our listeners to understand that's how the court is thinking about this. Tell me in as succinct a way as possible, what is your best understanding of the NCAA's current definition of amateurism? There is no succinct way to answer that. (laughs) Uh, the, The most succinct way, and there actually, there is a coherent definition. It's just an evolving coherent definition. So their current definition is that college athletes cannot receive compensation that is unrelated to education. So they can receive a scholarship. They can receive full cost of attendance. They can receive benefits related to education, whether it's music uh, instruments or science equipment, and they can receive certain sort of ancillary secondary payments related to athletic performance, but only if they are really minor, like gifts for getting to a bowl game 
or for making it into a tournament, but that's it. Anything beyond that, whether it's pay for play or currently pay for your name, image, and likeness, that would violate the current rules of amateurism under the NCAA. Okay. Now tell my listeners the reasons why NCAV Alston has ended up tomorrow in the Supreme Court. Well, there are a couple of reasons. The, the main, one of the reasons is that plaintiffs had, can, have continued to sue the NCAA because they believe that these amateurism restrictions are more restrictive than necessary. That even if you accept that we wanna differentiate college sports from pro sports, you don't need to prevent college athletes from being paid. What really differentiates them is that they are students and professional athletes are not or don't need to be. Uh, but it is nothing to do with whether they are paid for their performance or whether they are paid for their name, image, and likeness. So we're gonna continue to get these lawsuits. The reason it's in front of the Supreme Court is because the NCAA has said, no, we one get to define amateurism because we are the governing body of college sports. And two, because the Supreme Court said that we're allowed to define amateurism in the 1984 Supreme Court decision Board of Regents. And they claim that that decision says that the, that the NCAA gets deference in deciding what makes an amateur and what doesn't make an amateur. And that they shouldn't have interference from plaintiffs, from courts, potentially from Congress or from the states, that is the NCAA that's in the best position to decide this. So we are now in front of the Supreme Court to decide, all right, how much deference does the NCAA get under antitrust law? Does it get the deference they claim the Supreme Court gave them back in 1984? Or are we in a new world now where we've got billions of dollars flowing and only a relatively small portion of that going to the college athletes? Um, so it's, it's in front of the Supreme Court succinctly now to answer it because we need clarification from the Supreme Court as to how to apply antitrust law to the NCAA and what type of deference their amateurism rules should get. And one of the things I heard on your on your terrific podcast about this was that the NCAA doesn't want to have to return to the district court every time there's a problem, creating another set of just legal expenses and that type of thing. Yeah, because if you think about the traditional competitors that exist that antitrust law applies to, they would be two different flat screen television manufacturers. And those television manufacturers never have to reach an agreement to produce their product. They, Sony doesn't need to talk to LG to make a Sony TV. College sports and sports in general are different. If LSU is going to play Alabama, they have to talk to each other. We need a series of agreements to have the game itself, then to have a conference and then to have a national championship. Those are interrelated agreements. So they are not only competing, but they're also cooperating. And so the NCAA says, if we get sued every time we reach an agreement, we're going to get sued every day because every time we play a game, it's an agreement. And so you need, we need NCAA protection under antitrust law. We need more deference to allow us to reach these agreements to allow college sports to exist. Great. Got it. All right. The one case that folks might be more familiar with is the Ed O'Bannon case that it was started in 2014. I think it was when it went to trial. Briefly described um, how this merged now into NCAA v. Austin. Yeah, so Ed O'Bannon brought his lawsuit initially, people might recall, because a, a friend of his was playing the college basketball video game and playing with the UCLA Classic team. And they saw Ed O'Bannon and said, hey, how much are you getting paid for this? He said, I'm not getting paid anything. They said, well, that seems wrong. He said, yeah, that does seem wrong. So he brought a suit on behalf of, at the time, former college athletes for the use of their name, image, and likeness in video games. That grew to not only include former but also current athletes and not only in video games but also in television broadcasts so that was about name image and likeness 
current and former athletes. The case ended up being decided on much narrower grounds by the Ninth Circuit. That's the case that ultimately said that the NCAA cannot limit the grant and aid below full cost of attendance, but it did not allow the athletes to be paid for name, image, and likeness, or allow the schools to continue to restrict those payments. Because I said, even if it's a penny, any amount of money unrelated to education would destroy amateurism. So okay. while that case was still being litigated, while it was being decided by the Ninth Circuit, the Alston case was filed. And the Alston case said, look, name, image, and likeness is important, but we want to achieve broader gains. We think that any restrictions on compensation, name, image, and likeness, or even pay for performance are illegal under antitrust law. So Alston was really the next step in the evolution. O'Bannon opened the door. Alston is an attempt to bring down the entire house. Okay, okay. So now that you've mentioned antitrust, let's take a little bit of a deeper dive into that. Why is the, the and specifically the Trump's Department of Justice, because I don't think Biden's uh, uh, administration has come out on this yet, why was the DOJ so concerned about antitrust issues that they ended up filing a brief in support of the Austin side of the equation? So how does yeah. that? Yeah, so we've had activity from both departments of justice, essentially. The okay. Trump DOJ on their last day or last week said, wrote a threatening letter to the NCAA, said, we're watching you, and we think what you're doing is probably illegal under antitrust law. And then in the Alston case, the Solicitor General filed a brief on behalf of the plain, uh, on behalf of the plaintiffs, on behalf of Alston, not to wade into the amateurism debate or whether college athletes should be paid or shouldn't be paid, but instead to wade in on the application of antitrust law. And it's a federal statute. It applies obviously to well beyond just the NCAA or to sports entities. And their basic argument is that the rule of reason, which is the, the basic mode of analysis under Section 1 of the Sherman Act, that that rule of reason should apply to the NCAA just like it does to every other industry that the NCAA is not entitled to special treatment, that we should just apply the same analysis to whether it's college sports, pro sports, or television manufacturers. So that, that's why the Department of Justice now is engaged in this case. Okay, as, as we used to think of it, or big oil, way back in the 1890s, exactly. yeah. Exactly. yeah. Right. Now it's big TV, then it used to be big oil. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So once oral arguments are complete, the court should hand down a decision by the end of June of this year you have followed this for a long time. What should we expect? And if it goes nowhere, what does that mean? And I've heard that the SCOTUS re reverses the lower court ruling about 70% of the time. Yeah, and so it's interesting. The stats have, are sort of plus or minus 70% reversal rate. It's actually higher with the Ninth Circuit, which is where mm. this case is coming okay. out. The Ninth Circuit gets reversed most frequently, but I, I, I wouldn't read too much into those statistics. Every case is unique. And this is even, I would say, as an additional level of uniqueness uh, because it's a sports case. And sports mm -hmm. cases just get decided differently, often because the judges who are hearing the case are sports fans. And so they approach it not as a conservative or a liberal, but as a sports fan. And they look mm -hmm. at it as, what will the law do to this sport I love? It's why we got this weird baseball exemption for so long because the Supreme Court put on their baseball cap. Um, and now, sorry, if you can hear the lawnmower in the- <laughs> Happens all the time. <laughs> that's, that's the antitrust engine whirring in the background. <laughs> uh, uh, so it, it's, it's hard to predict, but we just don't know, especially with, with this relatively new mix of Supreme Court justices. On the one hand, we'd say it's, it's a relatively conservative court. 
and conservative justices tend to rule in favor of big business and not in favor of labor. So that would suggest that the NCAA might win the case. On the other hand, conservatives are in, uh, in favor of free markets, and this is a restriction on free markets. So that means maybe the athletes would win. But on the other, other hand, if anyone has three hands, then we'd say this will get decided as a sports case. How much deference do the justices want to give to college sports? So it's, it's a, um, as I've been saying, my crystal ball wasn't very good to begin with, and it's now shattered. So I, I won't make any predictions. But if the court rules in favor of the NCAA, and this is a, you suggested this earlier, it doesn't mean that this is over. There will still be potentially additional litigation. And we have Congress who has now introduced up to seven bills that would address college sports. And not only name image and likeness, but just more generally the relationship between the schools and the athletes. So this is not necessarily the end of it. In a normal year, the Supreme Court would be the end. But now it's not because we have the states that are looking at this and Congress that is looking at this. So this may just be the beginning of a battle. And this is one of the real problems is that the, these legal fees eat into the revenues that the NCAA is supposed to be generating and giving back to the institutions. So in some ways it would be nice to have some clarity so that the organization stops getting sued and therefore can spend less dollars on, on lawyers and more dollars on athletes. At least that's the idea, right? Right, well, and that's part of the, the Knight Commission's proposal is to separate out the governance structure for uh, what's currently FBS football because so much of the litigation and so much of the expense is around football that is essentially being carried by all the other sports. And decisions are being made with football in mind, but applying to all these other sports. It'll be more efficient and lead to better governance if we were able to focus on the FBS football on the one hand and then basketball and the other sports on the other hand. Because right now, as, as you know, FBS football is not controlled by the NCAA and the right. championship is not controlled by the NCAA. And yet, so much of the expense and the liability is borne by the NCAA. And yet, the revenue is not shared with the NCAA. Correct. Are there any precedents for that and sort of splitting up? Uh, it's really not even a league. It's as as your your guests on your podcast said, it's really just an event that the NCAA sets up, which is March Madness. So is there any precedent for splitting an organization like that? Yeah, I mean, you, you could. And we're already seeing there's split between Division One, Division Two, II, Division Three, And there's split between... FBS and FCS, and they're split between the Autonomy Five and Group of Five. So it's just be another variation of that. And, and the goal is really to allow college athletics to focus more on college athlete welfare and to modernize things. And, and, and it's, it's just, there are so many different interests trying to pull in different directions that I think it skews good governance. And yeah. so I, I think, yeah, there are models out there that can say, let's let football focus on football and let's let the rest of college sports focus on the rest of college sports. And so at the assumption is then that the uh, Knight Commission would have FBS football do all of their own uh, regulatory uh, systems. So they'd have, com they'd have compliance, they'd have eligibility, they'd have all of that, right? Right, there are different variations of it, but yeah, that would certainly be one variation is they've got to foot the bill for all of their compliance yeah. work and, and oversight. Yeah. Uh, there are others where it could still be shared and it yeah. would still be within the same athletic department. Um, so it, it's more, uh, it, it, one, I think it's, it's a better governance model. And two, there's a recognition that the current system is not working. And not only is it not working, it's constantly under attack. And if the NCAA doesn't 
change itself, the change is going to be forced on it. And that's why you and I are talking right now is because the Supreme Court may force change on them tomorrow or, or in the next coming months. But what the Supreme Court is not going to do is say, here's how you should govern yourself. They're just going to say what you can't do. Right. So still at some point going to decide how they are going to operate and how they are going to govern themselves. And so do they want Congress to tell them? Do they want the states to, to tell them? Or do they want to get together among themselves and decide what the future of college sports is? The commission believes that the university presidents should get together and make those decisions, again, not have them forced on them. Okay, so building on that, what, what then should college presidents and trustees today be paying attention to with, with an upcoming ruling, one way or the other? Yeah, I, I think they should be focused on, I would say two things. One is the simple thing is regardless of what the Supreme Court does, doesn't mean the discussion is over, that the university presidents still have to figure out the best way for them to govern college athletics that is fair to college athletes. Um, and that can continue to sustain what people love about college sports, but while still giving more rights and being more fair to college athletes and still um, providing opportunities, providing equity. Uh, so I, th that's to me still the most important doesn't matter what the Supreme Court does, that's still priority number one. And then in terms of what they should look for for the Supreme Court, there's only so much we're going to be able to tell from the questions the court asks tomorrow. So until then, it's going to be a guessing game. Once we see the decision, we will have at least more guidance in terms of what antitrust law says that colleges can or can't do. But that's just a sliver of what the universities can do. It, it may be an important sliver, but I don't like to think of college sports governance being dictated by antitrust law. They have to operate within the confines of antitrust law, just like they have to operate within the confines of intellectual property law and contract law and Title IX. But think about what makes most sense for the athletes and what you're allowed to do under antitrust law. The answer of what you're allowed to do might change because of Alston. The answer right. might not be able to have as many restrictions in place. There might be greater benefits flowing to college athletes. Uh, or we might be in the status quo. But it, to me, that's still in a lot of ways secondary to how we are treating our college athletes, how we're protecting them, how we are promoting the game, how we're promoting women's sports, how we're promoting Olympic sports. Um, that, again, the, the, the contours might change because of the Supreme Court, but the underlying goals and principles won't change. Yeah, absolutely. And that leads me to uh, one of my last questions. Do you think that the NCAA actually needs more external oversight and accountability? Like some people have said the Federal Trade Commission or uh, a, a group appointed by Congress who has to report back every two years. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? I think there needs to be some independent oversight. Okay. I think that is has been lacking. I think that's been an, that, that has been an important principle of the Knight Commission that um, for a variety of reasons, it's been difficult for the NCAA to govern itself effectively and to provide additional rights to college athletes. And despite the promises they made that they would announce new rules and vote on them in January, that's been postponed. Um, so whatever rules go into effect with respect to NIL and potentially other areas, I do think it's important to have an independent body providing some oversight. And I also think it's important to have a student athlete vote, not just a voice, but a vote. Student athletes do have a voice now. SAC is an important body, um, but they don't really have a, a true vote. And so to have some say in the rules and, and how things are governed, whether that's current or former student athletes, but whoever those people are, are representing the student athletes. 
I think that's that's been missing. So independence and more of a student athlete uh, saying things. Do, do you do you advocate that that this board, this independent board, should have some reporting structure up to Congress or up to a court or? How I, does I'm that sort work? Of, yeah, I'm sort of agnostic on that. I don't think it should report okay. to a court. I don't think we okay. want to have a court or a judge having continuing jurisdiction over this. Whether okay. it reports to a federal entity, whether it's the FTC or whether it's more like the Olympic model where Congress creates um, this body and then it gets to govern itself. Uh, there are pros and cons to both. I, I think to me, those are more in the sort of detail area. And the bigger issue is let's have that independent body. And there are, the devil is in the details and we got to figure out those answers of who's going to choose that body and then who's going to oversee the body and all those questions. Those are difficult questions to answer, but they can be answered. Let's start with the more difficult uh, problem, which is creating the body. And yeah. then we can figure out who gets to be in the body and, and who the body reports to. Right. That's great. Well, Gabe, thank you so much for your time today, your expertise. This is a thorny, thorny subject, but a really important one. It seems like every day this week I've been reading at least six articles about this. Uh, it's getting a lot of attention, and, and I'm going to continue to lean on you to help us understand it more. Thank you so much. After you do that, I'll try to keep the lawnmower uh, away. <laughs> next time.